We would now like to read from God's Word bulletin here. If you want to just take a moment to find it, or if you have a, a Bible or your phone. Ecclesiastes 2. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delight of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. In Ecclesiastes 3, at, starting at verse 9, what work, what does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know what I just did. Sorry. Uh, thanks, Kathy, for reading for us. Um, so we are, uh, this is week two of a series that we are doing on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're calling the series the book of questions. For those who are uh, guests with us, um, let me just quickly explain. Uh, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book written by this ancient teacher who may have been Solomon, uh, who the Bible describes as the wisest man who had ever lived. Uh, it may have been written by another Solomonic figure, meaning another person who is like Solomon. In any case, uh, the point of the book is to wrestle with the big questions of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, where can find one find contentment in life and joy in life, that kind of thing. But it does, through, does so through asking questions. He's, he's like Socrates before Socrates. He asks these questions that are meant to push us and goad us and prick our minds and, 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 and 
act kind of like a pebble in your shoe. You know, when you're, you try to go for a walk and you get a pebble in your shoe and, uh, you know, maybe you got these like hiking boots on or you've got sandals on and it's kind of a pain to take them off and, and you're in the middle of this hike and so you think, ah, I'll just keep walking uh, and, and sort of fight through it and ignore it. But every step you take, there's that stupid pebble again. And it just annoys you and gnaws at you until finally you go, ah, forget it. And you sit down on a log and you change your, your uh, you, you clean out your shoe or your, your, uh, your sandal. That's what the author is doing by asking these questions. And he's taken this role uh, of what you could call a skeptic. So throughout this book, over and over and over again, he describes this life that he's trying to understand as being lived under the sun. And what he means by that is he's looking at life from a purely horizontal perspective, meaning All there is in the world is the physical universe. There is no spiritual reality behind it. There's no God. There's none of that kind of stuff. And therefore, because that's the case, there is no objective meaning. In other words, there is no grand story. There is no grand purpose for existence at all. It's it's just there. It's something that we're supposed to figure out on our own. And he says that trying to figure that out is like chasing the wind. And I've been thinking a fair bit about that recently. You know, this chasing the wind. What does that mean, chasing the wind? It's a great metaphor because wind is this weird thing, right? Wind, you can feel it, but you can't see it. And you can see it affect its effects. And it's one of these things where you don't, you don't know where it's coming from and you're not exactly sure where it's going, but you can see the kind of effect that it has on all the things around it. And if you try to grab it, if you try to get a hold of it, wrap your arms around wind, you can't. It's, it's, it's not graspable. And this is, this is what the author is saying life is like. It's not graspable. You think you've figured out a reason to live, and then it kind of passes by you, and you have to come up with another reason to live. You think you've figured out the, the answers to the big questions, and then they're sort of gone. You know how, like, I don't know, maybe I'm too self-referential, but you ever have these, you know, you know when you're sort of sleeping, but you're awake? And in those moments of sort of sleeping in, a, in awake, you might have, like, some kind of profound thought. Does this happen to you? You know, you're like, hokey doodle, I just had some brilliant insight into, the, you know, the the, the makeup of the universe, and I think I understand what reality is all about, and then you fall asleep, or you wake up and you realize it's gone. Now, maybe that was delusional, right? I'm probably delusional, I admit that. Uh, maybe you didn't have this real insight into the, the nature of reality, but you think you did, and it's because it's wind. Now, that may sound a little weird to some of you. You're like, oh, what, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with anything here and now? But actually, it has everything to do with here and now. Barry Sherman, many of you know who Barry Sherman is, probably didn't before, but now you do, because he and his wife, Honey, were found dead in their Toronto home. He was the founder of Apotex Pharma- Pharmaceuticals, right? 15, one of the top 15 richest people in Canada or something like that. Anyhow, he was found dead. He believed in this view of the purpose of li- life or in the nature of reality, that it was all meaningless. So, In an unpublished autobiography, he wrote this. Meaning, this is Barry Sherman. Meaning and purpose are by definition dependent on an intelligent being having an intent in mind. In other words, something that, like, you're walking along, you see a watch 
on the, on the road, you pick up the watch, and you immediately think, oh, somebody made this watch for a purpose. Hmm, what's the purpose? Okay? So he says, meaning and purpose are by definition dependent on an intelligent being have an intent in mind. A corollary of the non-existence of a God, meaning I don't believe there's a God, is that we here, we are here with no meaning or purpose to our lives. That was Barry Sherman. Now, you can believe that, but you can't live that way, right? You can't live that way. You can't live like there is no meaning or purpose in life. Like, I'm looking at a bunch of people who, I see men who have shaved today. I see women who have done their hair. I see, I, you got up, you got out of bed, and you came here to maybe to support Eddie, or maybe because this is what you do every week, whatever. You're living, you're still living for something, you can't live as though there is no purpose or meaning because if you did live as though there is no purpose or meaning, like if you really lived that way, you wouldn't live at all. So what do we do? If we can't live that way, if there is no objective meaning, here's what we have to do. We have to invent purpose. We have to invent meaning for ourselves. And that's what the teacher says he's trying to do. In verse 3, he says something interesting. He says, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Every one of us has got a few days to live or a few years to live. We're here. We might as well figure out what makes being here worthwhile, right? That's what he says he's going to do. What's worthwhile? You decide what's worthwhile for yourself. And the teacher says, one of the paths that people take, one of the ways that people think uh, is to live, one of the purposes for which people create in their minds a, a purpose to live is the pursuit of pleasure. If I'm here, I'm not, you know, I'm here for a good time, not a long time, right? So in verse 1, he says this, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Now, understand something, he's, he's not talking about just sort of feel good in the sense of getting dopamine or serotonin or something released in your brain, brain so that you just kind of feel good. Rather, it's not that shallow, he's, he's talking about a reason for existence, okay? Okay, people, we're trying again. I hope this works. Okay. We were talking about sex. <laughs> Look, um, sex feels good. But that's not the only thing you feel when you have sex. People don't just have sex just to feel good. People, when they make love, they think to themselves, I am loved, I am valued, I cherish this person, they cherish me. Even in a one-night stand, people talk about how they have this overwhelming desire to declare their devotion to someone, even in the middle of it all, uh, to this person who may be a stranger to them. And that's because it's not, the pursuit of pleasure is not just about the pursuit of feeling good physically. It's about something more. It's about the pursuit of meaning. That's what the teacher understood. And so he, he's going to walk us through together this, this pursuit of meaning through the pursuit of pleasure. He's going to walk us through that, and he's going to show us 
the problem, or sorry, the pursuit of pleasure, the problem of pleasure, and then the satisfaction or the transformation of pleasure. If you want to follow along, follow along uh, there are notes you can uh, take from the sermon outline in the back of the bulletin. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the pursuit of the pleasure, the problem of pleasure, and then the satisfaction or the transformation of pleasure as the teacher explains it in this passage. All right, first of all, the pursuit of pleasure. In verse 2, he says this, Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? And what he's doing is, is he's actually giving two different ways of pursuing pleasure. There's the way of laughter, and there's the way of what I'm calling the way of accomplishment. Or you can call it the lowbrow way or the highbrow way, okay? Um, he, he, he starts with this sort of lowbrow way, the way of laughter. Well, what does that mean? Well, in verse 3, he describes it. He said, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. And that's an important thing to remember. I'll get back to that in a second. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. But he's talking about the way of folly. He's talking about what you could call the party hard version of seeking pleasure. This guy partied. And he partied really, really, really hard. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is some old guy from ancient times. Did he really partay? And the answer is, you have no idea how this guy partied. In verse 8, he says this. He says, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. In verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Now, understand something. This guy is not just the 1%, he is the 0.01%. So when he says, I denied myself no pleasure, and I partied hard, he's not talking about some little kegger in your backyard on a, on a long weekend. This guy partied for night after night after night after night on end, denying himself nothing. He said, I want to eat pheasant tonight. Boom, he ate pheasant tonight. He said, I want to lay down with, with a dozen different women tonight. He laid down with a dozen different women. He called, he, if he is Solomon, he had 700 wives and he had 300 girlfriends on top of those wives. This guy denied himself no pleasure. He experienced the height of, of sensuality night after night after night after night to the point where Hugh Hefner was just nothing. And the way he lived his life was nothing in comparison with what this man experienced. Now, here's what you got to understand. The, the, the huge difference is this. He says in verse 3, he says, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. He knew what he was doing. He was testing it out. I don't know how that's possible, to be honest with you. I mean, you talk to, to people who have lived this kind of life, this hard kind of hard partying kind of life. What they tell you is, is that it eventually starts to take over and it, get, and, you, and it gets away from you. You no longer control it. It's controlling you. You become a kind of a slave to the party life. You need another hit. You need another woman. You need another drink. You need another uh, experience. You need another shot of dopamine or whatever it is that, that your brain responds to when you get into this kind of lifestyle. But somehow, this guy was able to understand what was happening to him while it was happening to him. And some of you are chasing that kind of life right now, or you're thinking about chasing that kind of life right now. Maybe, all right, maybe you're a young person and you're in high school now, 
And you're like, high school, okay. I'm out of that little school where the teachers are always eyeing you and keeping their eyes on you. I got more freedom and stuff, and uh, there's more people around and more things to experience. Now it's time to get my freak on. I'm going to experience what life has to offer. I want to live the life of kiss, you know? I want to party every day. What is it? I want to rock all night and party every day. I know that's like old, old, old. So you're, maybe you're more of a Black Eyed Peas fan and you say, tonight's going to be a good night. That's pretty old too, I admit. I don't know what the hot party song is right now. But you are thinking to yourself, this is the kind of life I want to live because when I look on Instagram, when I look on my friend's Snapchat story, when I follow this, this star on Twitter, it looks pretty fun. It looks pretty rocking. It looks pretty awesome. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now the preacher is going to tell me, oh, it's not that fun. Actually, I'm not. It is fun. That's why people do it. It does feel good. People get involved in sex, drugs, and rock and roll because sex, drugs, and rock and roll make them feel good. It is pleasurable, at least for a while. But as the author says in verse 11, he says, When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. See, what he discovered is, is that no matter how much he partied and no matter how much, how much he tried to fill himself up with these sort of sensual pleasures, he discovered that it was never enough. You know, there's a preacher, a Scottish preacher by the name of Alistair Begg, and he uses a great kind of illustration about kids to, to help get this through. And I, it's just, it's really good, but it's funny. So that's why I'm going to tell it to you, because it's good and funny. He says, you know, and he's Scottish, so he says it in a Scottish accent, and I'm, I'm not going to, I don't have the guts to try that myself. But uh, he, he says, you know, you give, a, you give a little four-year-old kid their first tricycle, and they think, this is awesome. And they're riding that tricycle up and down the driveway. And then they're thinking this is the best thing in the world. And then all of a sudden, some kid goes by on a two-wheeler. And they're in their tricycle and uh, coming down the driveway. And a kid goes by on the sidewalk on their two-wheeler. And they go. And then they look at their tricycle and they think, this is stupid. What am I doing on this stupid tricycle when I could be on a two-wheeler? So then they go into mom. Mom, 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 mom. Give me a two-wheeler. Give me a two-wheeler. Give me a two-wheeler. And mom says, you're not ready for it. You just learned the tricycle. Give it a bit of time. And the kid tries to be patient but keeps coming back. Give me a two-wheeler. Give me a two-wheeler. Give me a two-wheeler. So mom goes off to a garage sale, finds a cheap two-wheeler, gives it to the kid and says, there you go. Knock yourself out. Kid does a couple times learning how to drive it. And then eventually now he's on a two-wheeler and he thinks, this is the life. <laughs> cruising by the, the little play school where the kids are on their tricycles thinking, look at those guys on their tricycles. I'm flying around on a two-wheeler. And then they stop and they get themselves an ice cream enjoying their two-wheeler and all of a sudden a guy goes flying by on a scooter. And he says, what kind of loser am I on this stupid two-wheeler pedaling away when I could be on a scooter? And you think, oh, come on. But how many people here want an iPhone 10? Yeah, and how many of us already have an iPhone 7? Right, this acquisitiveness, this desire for more stuff, we're chasing it, we're thinking that this is, this is going to satisfy us, and the reality is, is that it doesn't. And the reason that, the, that, the, that the, the, the teacher knows that, and you and I don't know that, is because we're not part of the 1%. 
Most of you are not partying as hard as you'd like to because you can't afford it. You're not taking as many luxury vacations as you'd like because you can't afford it. And so you think deep down, oh, you know, if I can just get that, then I'll be there. Then I'll arrive. And he who has arrived and has been there, he says, it ain't all it's cracked up to be. And maybe some of the older people in the room this morning are saying, yeah, that's right. Tell those young people, don't pursue that pleasurable life because that's not where satisfaction is found, etc. But wait a minute. He says there's a second way that we pursue pleasure. And he describes that way. In verses 4 to 8, listen to this. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water uh, groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. What's he talking about? Well, if the first way is the lowbrow way and you're just trying to, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of party, the, the other way is kind of the highbrow part of way of, of, of achieving this pleasure, luxury, creature comforts through your success, through your accomplishments, Right? Get a good job, make a lot of money, then you can do with that money what you want. And so you buy a nice house and you nicely landscape the property and, and you save up for retirement. So when you're done working, you can do with your life that, what, whatever you want. You can travel, you can take salsa dancing lessons, whatever. You can buy art and go to wine tastings and visit vineyards. It's the way of highbrow aesthetics. You can visit the symphony and you can go to the AGO and maybe you can even go to an art auction and, and be able to afford to, to, to bid on something. How fun would that be? And the teacher says, you know, it's a different way of ending up in the same place. Some of you may have heard of a guy named Jack Higgins. He was a very successful author, wrote a bunch of novels uh, that were very popular, turned into movies and that kind of thing. And in an interview, he was asked, you know, you, you, know, you were so successful. You have made it to the top. What, what is one thing that you wish you knew now, or sorry, wish you, that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were young? One thing that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were young. And he said, his answer was this. It's extremely telling. He says, I wish I knew that when you make it to the top, there's nothing there. Because he was at the top. And he had discovered that there was nothing there. And again, if, you're, if you've given, a, given up on the way of, of sort of sensual pleasure, but you haven't given up on this way of kind of acquisitive pleasure, it's because you're not there yet. Maybe you don't have the cottage, or maybe you don't have the big cottage that you really want, or maybe you don't have the boat, or maybe you don't have the big boat that you really want, or maybe you haven't taken all the vacations, or whatever, and so you think that maybe if I can just get those, I will finally be satisfied. And the, the, the teacher is trying to push us to, to realize that will never, ever, 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 ever happen. And of course, since we are so saturated by our modern Western consumeristic culture, we have an awfully hard time believing that it won't work. We have a really hard time believing that it won't work. Why won't it work? We want to say, come on! And he gives us the answer. 
He says there's a problem with pleasure. Now, understand something. Before we get to the second point, the problem of pleasure or the problem of the pursuit of pleasure. He is not saying that pleasure is bad, okay? He's not saying pleasure is bad. In fact, the Bible emphatically teaches that human beings were created to experience pleasure, to enjoy pleasure. The Garden of Eden was a garden of earthly delights. There was was no pleasures that were denied Adam and Eve. Before they fell and rebelled against God, they experienced all joy and all contentment to the nth degree beyond what you and I could ever imagine. We were created for it. You know, people often think, look, people have a misconception about Christianity. They say, you know, Christianity, it's such a wet blanket, right? God Let's be honest, even Christians think this way. God's kind of a party pooper. You know, he's all about rules, rules, rules. Don't do this, don't do that. Can't have fun. He's a spoil sport. And Christianity is all about that too. Don't, 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 don't. Do, 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 do. Wrong, wrong. In fact, what the teacher is driving at is this unbelievable thing. He's saying, look... There are deep pleasures, profound pleasures that can be experienced that cannot be found in any other place when you understand the problem, the human condition with respect to pleasure, and you understand how it's solved, then you can really live and really experience contentment. Well, what's the problem? He summarizes it in the second passage we read in verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. This is an amazing verse. There's there's more in here than I can get into this morning, but he says this, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That's a really important point. We'll get back to that one. But the point I want to focus on right now is when he says this, he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. What on earth does implanted in us an endlessness in our hearts, a desire that is eternal. We long for eternity. We long for endlessness. In other words, we have a longing for a pleasure that that goes beyond the walls of this world. Let Let me put it in a very stark way for you. You think too little of yourself as human beings. You think that you were created for earth only, but you were created for heaven. Not just earth, but also heaven. You were created to experience an endless, never-ending bliss, more pleasure than the earth could ever provide. You were created to experience and know a pleasure that is beyond this earth's ability to satisfy. And you know it. Deep down, you know it. That's why when you wake up the next morning after a a really awesome party, you're bummed. Because you're like, it's over. And you got to find the next awesome party and chase it again. Even if you're hungover and you feel like garbage, you got to try again. Or, Or you make partner. Or you finally buy the cottage, or you you finally bed the woman, or you finally close the deal, whatever, and six weeks later, you're like, eh, it drives me nuts every time I buy a car. And I don't get to buy them all that often, but every time I buy a car, I think, this is so awesome. I love getting in it and driving it and smelling the new car smell. Even if it's a used car, they still put something in it, makes it smell new. (laughs) And you drive it around, and you think, man, this is way better than my last car. And then you get your first bill from from the mechanic, and you're like, eh. Here we go again. It's just a car. It's just a car. It's just a car. 
the teacher is uncovering something remarkable about us. Our longing for pleasure is an eternal longing, meaning it can't be satisfied by anything finite. It can only be satisfied by something infinite. That's why he says in verse 14, God does it so that men will revere him. What does he mean by that? So that human beings will seek him. The only thing that is eternal. There's a quote on the front of your bulletin that I'm going to read. It's one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite authors, a guy named C.S. Lewis. Can, and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to read it slowishly because I think it's very deep and profound. I'm going to ask you if, if you've been struggling to listen to me, and I don't blame you, okay? I talk too long probably. Can, can you try to follow along with this for a minute? And if this is the only thing you think about after you leave this morning, that's cool with me. I hope it's not, but if it is, that's good enough because this is so insightful. Most people, he says... Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And now listen to this. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be ver a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. See? All these things are good. That's why the teacher says in verse 11, he said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. But God made everything beautiful in its time. In its time. It's finite. It has a place in our lives. It has a, a moment in our experience. But it's finite. And therefore, it's chasing after the wind. If you grab onto it, it will always, always eventually be gone. We were born remembering a music that we're listening for in every song we hear. We're born remembering the scent of a flower that we're looking for in every flower we smell. Our problem is that we have a misplaced desire. The stones were right. I can't get no satisfaction. I can keep going. Bruce Springsteen was right. <laughs> Everybody's got a hungry heart. Oh, I'll stop there. But why do you think the theme runs through so much music? Because it's a theme of the human condition. So are we doomed? Are we doomed? Point three says, no, we don't have to be doomed. Our pursuit can be satisfied. We get a hint of how in verse 14 when he says... Um, 
I know that everything God does will endure forever. Okay? Everything that God does will endure forever. There's only one thing that lasts, and that's God. He is the only thing with no beginning and with no end. Now, we only get a hint, as I said, because the teacher is speaking before the coming of Jesus. But Jesus did say the same thing. There's a great story in John chapter 4. I encourage you, if you have time, to go find it eventually and read this story. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to this village and he meets a woman there at a well. And they end up in a different in a conversation, and this woman, it turns out, is a pleasure seeker. She's had many husbands. She's had five husbands, and right now she's basically exchanging sex for rent because she's living with a guy who's not her husband. And they start having a conversation, and Jesus says to this woman, he says, hey, can I have, a, can I have some water? And she gives him this water, and, and Jesus drinks it, and he says, you know, I drink this water, and I'm thirsty again. That's how people are. You drink this water, you got to drink again. You're going to be thirsty again. It just never ultimately satisfies. But then he says, I have, a, I have a water that if you drink from that water, you'll never thirst again. Now, of course, she does not understand what he's talking about. And don't feel bad for her because you are, don't, don't judge her because you wouldn't know what he was talking about either. And so Jesus says, hey, why don't you call your husband? And she goes, well, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and now you're shacking up. You've got a new lover. Woman, you're thirsty. That's what he's telling her. You're thirsty. You are looking for satisfaction in the embrace of a man. What an old, old story that is. Men are doing it too in the embrace of a woman, trying to find that satisfaction through romance. We're all looking for love in all the wrong places. And, and when we don't experience it and we don't get what we want, we either trade it in or we try harder. And look what it has produced. That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. Look what it has produced to you. Here you are. It's high noon. You're at the village well by yourself drawing water. You know what that means, friends? It means that she's a complete outcast in the community. It means nobody wants to hang out with her and nobody wants to spend any time with her. She has lost all her other relationships, her friends, her family, her community. They have all turned their back on her because she has been so consumed with finding this satisfaction in this guy. And Jesus says, listen to her, look, I'm eternal. I'm what you've been looking for all your life. See, you've done lots of wrong. You're a social outcast. Nobody wants anything to do with you. But here I am, the son of God, God in the flesh. And I'm right here in front of you and I'm talking to you and I'm offering you relationship. I know everything that you've done. See, this is the amazing thing about the gospel you got to understand, God knows everything you've done, everything you've thought, everything you've said, every ugly, self-centered, horrible thing that has ever come out of you in any way. This is what Eddie was saying in his testimony. He knows every single thing, and yet, knowing all of that about us, what does he do? He offers us his embrace. He offers us pleasures beyond our wildest dreams. How can he do that? He can do it through his death and his resurrection. See, the gospel message is that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin, but he rose again from the dead so that when he offers you his pleasure, you can be certain it'll never run out 
because it's eternal. It goes on forever and it comes from the infinite one. Now this transforms pleasure. If you finally accept him, you find your insatiable heart finally, it is a word, satiated. Finally satisfied and it transforms all other pleasures. Because right now we're ascribing to our lovers weights that they cannot bear or jobs weights that they cannot bear or even money itself, a weight that it cannot bear. It's expected to provide and satisfy but it can only do it for a little while. And so then we need a new lover or a better job or more money or whatever. But in Jesus Christ... He is so deep a well that you can never, never exhaust him. So that your lover, your job, your money, it finds its proper place. Come to Jesus. Find in him the satisfaction of your deepest desires. Let's pray. Father, Unbelievable, this gospel. Yeah, everybody's got a hungry heart, Father. But you sent Jesus to satisfy our hungry hearts. Feed us with his love. Help us to repent of our rebellion against you. Help us to see how we have been chasing, chasing finite pleasures when... All along, you have held out in front of us this infinitely greater satisfaction in Jesus, our Savior, and help us to receive him. That's all we have to do. It's amazing. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.